بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam alrighty so what I'd like to do for today is now go through all the material that we covered uh, in Al-Baqarah and put it all together <coughs> excuse me a second and, and so then look at what are some of the big themes of our discussions that we've had over the course of, mashallah, literally the last month. So congratulations to all of you who survived, who survived torture for, for, you know, day after day after day. So let me pull up the um, screen, here, the, I, uh, the whiteboard here. So I'm in a different system, so I'm gonna be more clunky in terms of my writing. Okay, so someone let me know that you can see the whiteboard. Yeah, okay, good. All right. And so, because I don't have access to all my screens, if someone uh, right now the whiteboard is up, if you have a question or something, just unmute and start talking or type in the chat box, but someone else will have to draw attention to me for, for the chat box itself. But having said that, okay, so looking at the overall surah, So we have one, we have Alif Lam Mim. And again, this is a repetition. As hopefully you've noticed, one of my styles of teaching is repetition, repetition, repetition. And we had models of belief and rejection. And then we had foundational concepts and commands. And then we have the origins. So this is the first 39 ayahs of the surah that I was identifying as the introduction of Al-Baqarah. And then after that, so this is, and then part two is the Ummah of Musa, peace be upon him. Part three, is the Ummah of Muhammad. And then we have the conclusion. So, and so part one, introduction, Ummah of Musa, Ummah of Muhammad, and then conclusion. So from all this, if we were to look at parts two, three, and four as a discussion reflecting upon uh, number one, 
here. So, so in fact, you know what, just so for, for convenience, uh, let me change this to ABCD. So, cause I'm gonna use numbers. You don't have to change it in your screen. So it's the same point here. Okay. So if you look at number one on the screen, Alif Lam Mim. If we were to imagine <clears throat> that sections two, three, and four, models of belief and rejection, foundational concepts and commands in origins are all providing us with reflection on part one, how? So for example, how is part three, foundational concepts and commands, giving us a reflection on things we discussed about Alif Lam Mim. What do you think? So now I'm forcing you to use your mind even harder now. Any thoughts? Well, try to keep this First one is that uh, in regards to Alif Lam Mim is, um that Allah Allah does what Allah pleases okay. or based on Allah's will and uh, and and these concepts and commands in uh, if we say in particular number threes uh, we have to take as a prescription okay. uh, as mentioned before many times okay. um, uh, it's it's uh there's not uh, yeah it's, it's something that you have, uh, uh, the prescription that provides the provides the solution of or, or diagnosis of something, and you have to take it as it is. Okay, okay. So I'm going to slightly modify what you just said, and I'm going to say that in Alif Lam Mim, it's this complete unknown, right? The only thing we can really gather is number one, these are Arabic letters, and then number two, this is how it's been recited year after year, you know, for, through the generations. But we know almost nothing. And then the foundational concepts are saying, here's how life works. So taking us from unknown into known. Make sense? Yeah. The three is saying, here's how reality operates. You have Allah, you have the Prophet, you have the Quran, peace be upon them. Allah made everything for you. And then here's how you should then react. Here's how you should navigate to everything that Allah created and such. And so I, uh, section one is this complete unknown. And then section three is here's how reality works and here's how to navigate it. So now it's making it known. Yeah, that works. Okay, okay good. So now if section two is a reflection on section one, how? And think back to what we described about the people of Taqwa versus the hypocrites and such. Anyone? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that uh, in terms of uh, it's just models of beliefs, or so we can say uh, that human being or the personality of human uh, being has been defined into these three characteristics okay. uh, in terms of behavior. So these okay. traits are fundamental traits of every human being. Okay, okay, all right. Keep going, anyone else? 
this is like this is like the oral exam. So now it's now it's like we've gone through all the material. Now you have to put it all together. And your thoughts? How does <clears throat> section two IS two through twenty reflect IA one? Should I start calling on people? I'll automatically. Khurum uh, gets an A for, for having his camera on. Oh, Judy's camera's back on, so Judy also gets an A. All right, <clears throat> anyone? So here, I'll make it easy. That Alif Lamim again is this huge unknown. In fact, I'm saying huge. We don't know if it's a big unknown or a small unknown. And then these three attributes are responses to the unknown. The people of Taqwa, have thorough trust, trust in God. And so that helps in navigating, that guides them in navigating the unknown. The hypocrites have distrust in God. So in dealing with the unknown, they're going to take the safest path, whatever path is, is guaranteed, you know, not based on belief. So if they see the next step is safe, they'll walk. If they're not sure, then they're not going to walk. Whereas the coffers, the unknown, they're going to do their own thing. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, so same exercise. How would section four, the origin story, relate to the unknown? Relate to other family. So think of all the steps that we talked about. You have the announcement, you have the prostration, you have the, um, the, the tree. And then it's also Allah's concluding words. What if we just focus on Allah's concluding words? How does that relate to the unknown? So think back to Ayah 38 and 39. You're welcome to look it up. You don't have to memorize it. And how does that relate to the unknown? Well, that completely explains the unknown that when the angels were questioning Allah Ta'ala, um, and um, and Allah Taala then um, proved uh, to angels uh, mm -hmm. when a Adam, peace be upon him, uh, repeated the names. So, so that was a proof uh, to angels, which they, which was unknown to them. Okay. So one is that Allah possesses all knowledge, right? And He shares the knowledge with whomever He wills. Right? That's been a repeated theme. That we've seen. I 29, Allah knows all. I 30, I know what you do not know. I 33, didn't I tell you that I, that I know to reveal what you conceal? And then related to that in I 38 and 39, guidance will come. If you follow it, you're going to be okay. If you reject it, you're stuck. Okay. And so, what are we saying here? If we look at Section two, as a reflection on section one, we're showing three different ways that people respond to the unknown. One is by having trusted God. That's the people of Taqwa. One is rejecting God, choosing your own way. That's the kafir. The third is distrusting God, even though you claim to trust. That's the path, that's the path of the hypocrite. Now, second, uh, uh, third section, Foundational concepts and commands. How does that relate to the unknown reflection of the unknown? It's here Allah is saying, here's how reality operates. 
And here's Allah's prescription on how to then navigate through reality. And then section four, if we look look at that as a reflection on the unknown. One is that Allah is the one who possesses all knowledge and he gives it, you know, to whom he pleases, when he pleases. And if you follow it, you'll be okay. If you don't, then you'll be in trouble. And so what we saw is that the angels followed it because they don't have the capability to do otherwise. Adam and Eve followed it, went wrong, and then followed it again. Iblis rejected it, sort of followed his own version, but when the instructions came, he rejected it. So one way to look at this whole section is to say that central to life is the the challenge of navigating the unknown. And now looking through section two, either I can take the path of trust in God, seeking to increase my trust in God. That's the path of taqwa. I can take the path of a hypocrite, which is to distrust God. And so I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to keep myself covered. I'm going to protect myself. And then if we look at section three, we see that, okay, that section as well as the Quran overall is saying, here's how reality operates. That's, that was one of the very first lessons I was giving, right? All the way at the beginning of the class. That scripture is saying, here's how reality operates. And the difference between scripture and sci-fi fantasy novels is that scripture is also, aside from claiming to be 100% truth, scripture is also telling you how to navigate life. Which then means that my goal is to embrace reality for what it is. Versus the challenge is, no, this is how I want reality to work. So a micro version of that is a child at home saying, okay, I want this toy. No, you have to earn it. No, 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 why can't I have it now? Or the child is at dinner and says, can I get ice cream? Well, why can't I get ice cream before dinner? You know, why not? You'll get your ice cream after you eat dinner. No, why can't I have it before? I'll eat my ice cream and then I'll have dinner. Right? So the child is trying to force reality to work according to what the child wants. And to some degree, we all do that. And so when our version, our insistence on reality goes against what, how reality actually operates, then the result is frustration. And then the third is giving us a story of people who, who've gone or people and angels and chins who've actually gone through the process and Iblis wanted reality to work a different way. Whereas Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, they give in. They say, okay, here's how you set it all up. Thus we surrender. So far, so good. Does it all make sense? So basically, like uh, we can say that uh, number four is like uh, more like a uh, demonstration of number two. Yes. Of the reaction. Absolutely. One known. It's a demonstration exactly of number two. And it is a demonstration of people either embracing or rejecting number three. Adam and Eve embrace number three. Peace be upon them. Iblis rejects number three. Meaning this is not how he wants reality to operate. 
Make sense? Or am I, am I totally just confusing everyone? Okay, now let's make this more fun. And we've sort of already begun to answer this. <clears throat> How would you relate section two with section four? So let's say, for example, right now, the way it's ordered is you have Aleph Lamim first, then section two, section three, section four. Imagine there's no Aleph Lamim. Imagine the first passage of the Surah is the origin story. And then the next section is the story of models and beliefs of models of belief and rejection. The people have talked about the hypocrites, the coffers. How would you relate those two to each other? And it's fine if Huron wants to do all the class participation for love for the entire career. That's fine too. He is he is speaking for everyone. Yeah, yeah. In this case, I think uh, that we have now first uh, the, uh, the definition is now given and then then the following part there's this is examples okay so so now what's the definition and then what are the examples uh so you you're switching the the origin in the in this case, case definition would be the the uh, the be uh, the the response of the adam the progeny mm -hmm. adam and enlarged by uh, progeny of adam Mm -hmm. versus then the Satan and the progeny of Satan. Mm -hmm. Those are the defined uh, entities here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so it would be as though the people of Taqwa are taking the path of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them. Right? That's the path of the people of Taqwa. And, and so what we're also saying is that the people of Taqwa will make mistakes and they seek forgiveness. People of Taqwa will do wrong and they will seek forgiveness. And so they're modeling themselves after the path of Adam and Eve. The Kafirs and the hypocrites are modeling themselves after the path of Iblis. Because we also said that a hypocrite is a Kafir on the inside, believer on the outside. And the angels are the angels. They don't have a choice in the matter. So if anything that you people talk about, but that doesn't even apply to them. Make sense? Okay. Blank stairs, like my undergrad class. Okay, so now what if we switch it around? What if the first passage is the models of belief and rejection and the second passage is the origin story? Same thing or different or what? So this exercise is, is essentially what? We believe that all the ayahs can stand on their own. And a point I've been making since day one is that there is a, a, a discernible logic. There's an apparent logic in how the surah is structured. So what we're also doing is looking at the relationship between ayahs and ayahs. 
by chaining structures. So for example, if the beginning of the Sura said, there are three types of people, true believers, the people of Taqwa, kafirs, hypocrites, and here's metaphors about them. And then immediately after that, here's a story. Then in the same way that, that Iqbal mentioned that you had the, the definition and then I forgot the other word you used was the examples. We'd have the definitions, either you're gonna be a person of Taqwa or you're going to be a kafir on the outside or on the inside. And here's a story of Adam and Eve and the devil and see it in action. So then what does this mean? The next section after the origin story is the Ummah of Moses, peace be upon him. And you're gonna see all of this in their story. The mistake that we commonly make in the community is to say, okay, the story of the Ummah of Moses is the story of the children of Israel. That part's correct. But the story of the children of Israel is all about Jews. And then, look, these are all evil people. That's a complete huge mistake. Number one, you're missing its whole placement in the Quran. You're missing its placement in the Surah. That we're going to see all these different types of people and these different issues play out in their story. And what I mentioned yesterday, that that fundamental to their story is that their tragic flaw is lack of gratitude. Which is also what we said is one of the essence of a kafir. It's a lack of gratitude. Which is then, we can say, one of the essences of shaitan. It's lack of gratitude. If that makes sense, Think back to what we said about the first surah. That we said the first surah overall is a prayer to Allah for guidance. And then part of that is show me the favors you put in my life. Or guide me to see the favors that you put there. Guide me to recognize them. Which then how would I respond? With alhamdulillah. And so essentially what I'm saying is that at one level, when you put all of this together, Al-Fatiha, the introductory section, and the story of the children of Israel, one of the most overarching themes is how much gratitude do we have or how much ingratitude do we have? That central to the experience of life is this journey of gratitude. And then how does it get evaluated? It's when Allah puts things before us. So when Allah puts ease before us, that's an easy reason to to feel grateful. When Allah then hits us with struggle, do we forget all the good things that he's given us? Or do we realize, okay, this isn't arbitrary. Let's put this on me for a reason. It could be a sickness. It could be a loss of some form. It could be some some sort of pain, whether it's physical pain or, or pain of the heart. That Allah is so good to me, I need to persevere through this. And no one experienced more suffering than the Prophet did, peace be upon him. It's literally what he himself says. 
And if we even go through it, he loses six of seven children in his lifetime. His seventh child dies six months after him. So try to, and some of you may even know this pain of burying your own child. He buries six of his children. And he doesn't have the freedom to spend time to grieve. He still has to be the prophet throughout the whole thing, throughout the whole process. And then who are the people who are rejecting him? It's his cousins who've known him his whole life. And he's literally calling them back to their original religion. He's calling them to be upright. And they're rejecting him to the point that they drive him out of town. I mean, they literally try to kill him. And, and so then we see toward the end of his story, something akin to the story of Yusuf, peace be upon him. He had a similar experience. His brothers throw him in the well. It's found in the well, and then he gets sold into slavery, and then he gets purchased, and then he gets, and then he's uh, made the servant in the house, and then then we have the whole thing with the wife of the Aziz, and he gets sent to prison. He's in prison, in prison. One of the guys that's in prison with him gets hired to be the assistant to the to the the king, and says, "Hey, tell him about me." But that guy forgets for a couple of years, and then finally, it's remembered, and then he's brought to the king, and then everything begins to get put into place, and in the end, he forgives everybody, which is akin to the prophet, peace be upon him, at the end of the story, giving amnesty to everyone, just about everyone. There's some people, you know, that he takes some different steps. And so, so what I'm saying is, if you take one thing from this whole course, is that a central question of life, for which every single moment of your life is a test or a doorway, is what is the nature of your gratitude to God? And that gets evaluated in times of ease and that gets evaluated in times of struggle. It gets evaluated when Allah is telling you to do something like make your prayers, make your fasts. It gets evaluated when Allah puts you know, a situation on you where you have to make a tough decision, right? We said that there's five tests, five types of doorways. Obedience, ease, hardship, um, difficult decisions, and then for all the times you fall short on any of those four, seeking forgiveness. So that's one thing you've gotten from the whole course. That's one. A second level is, is the point that this whole thing, the whole text is structured in a very, very fascinating, but seemingly very, very sensible way. So, you know, I played around with what if you put this first, what if you put this first? We have Al-Fatiha, we're praying for guidance. And then the next page starts with this unknown. And then it says right after that, here is guidance. But you have to have taqwa. What's taqwa? Here's taqwa. And then here's three opposites of the people of taqwa. The kafirs, the monophics, and the fasics. And then as you're learning that, you know, you're learning that okay, you want to have taqwa. And then here's, the, here's how reality works that the whole world has been designed for you. And here's foundational commands, two related to your relation to Allah and one related to your relationship with other people, with believers especially. So if you have those, if you fulfill those, then we see at the very end of the whole passage, this fascinating line that comes a couple times in the Quran. Over and over again, you'll see, 
they need have whoops, they need have no fear nor shall they grieve. Okay, so one question. What is the relationship between fear and grief? Right? A common technique of interpretation we've been doing is when you see two things together, try to make sense of how they relate to each other. What's the relationship? So this is I 39, the very end of I 39. What's the relationship between fear and grief? The easiest way to figure it out is to define what is fear and define what is grief. So what is fear? Someone define what is fear. Or give me an example of fear. It's a reaction to unknown. Okay, make it more specific. What type of, I mean, hope is a reaction to the unknown as well. Like, uh, means um, uh, when, uh, when, when something, uh, uh, when you are suffering, you are, you are not able to understand something. Okay, but fear doesn't mean you're suffering. So, so say everything you're saying and make it even simpler. Um, I think I have racked everyone's brains daily to the point that everyone's now saying, all right, I'm done. Let me just have my, my ED and we'll go up on our way. So fear is what? Fear is that I don't want something to happen in the future. What is grief? That bad thing has happened. Yes, in the past. So fear relates to the future. Grief relates to the past. It's a, one way of navigating that uh, reaction that happened in the past, which is... Keep going. Like, uh, it, has, it has happened, and... And you didn't want it. Yeah, that's grief. And you are now navigating it through the grief. And so fear is regarding something in the future that I'm hoping will not happen. It's not happening at this time, but it may happen. Yeah, and thus it's fear. But that would also make it anticipatory grief. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Is that in a way what fear is? Yes. So. So you're already grieving something which hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, so I also have to distinguish between that type of fear and physiological fear. So when your nervous system takes over. So for example, if you're walking and suddenly a bus presses a horn, you shake. That's your nervous system. That's involuntary. I'm talking about, let's say, okay, you know, what if what if I get into a car crash? Oh, what if, what if, you know, my beloved dies or what if I lose my job, right? Those are all fear. And so what we're saying then <clears throat> is that if you have the path of gratitude, you will not be engulfed in grief. Grief is still going to be part of life, right? The prophet peace even had grief, you know, even, you know, he, how long did he mourn Khadija? You know, mother of the believers, he mourned her, it seems, all the way till the end. You know, she dies, 
you know, about 10 years into the prophet's prophethood, and he is still, you know, missing her a decade later. And so there's an aspect of grief that is going to be part of just existence. So if you have beloveds who've passed away, parents who've passed away, especially, then you're going to be longing for them, you know, thinking about them for the rest of your life. That's not what we're talking about. Here we're talking about being immersed in grief. That if you have gratitude, you'll remove your need to be immersed in grief. And if you have gratitude, it'll also temper your fear. Judy, you're about to say something? So I'm just trying, you distinguish between fear and grief. And now I'm trying to distinguish in my head between trust and gratitude. Okay. Um, what, would, what would be the difference? I don't know. Matter. So in this context, I would suggest that they're related. Uh, I mean, because if more... I trust Allah, then like the example of Khadijah, he's trusting that, you know, he's going to be reunited. So he's, he, he has less to be sad about in the future. Sure. But even uh, so uh, think of the pain that a parent feels when their child goes to college. Mm. Right. You know, that the child's going to be home for winter break. But when the ch first child goes for the first time, then, you know, the parents are missing the child, right? And the assumption is that literally we'll be seeing each other in like two months. You know, just assuming the child's been at home the whole time and everything. And so, so yeah, and the prophet, uh, he's already been informed by Jibril that there's palace, a specific palace waiting for Khadija in paradise. And so it's fair to assume that he's expecting to meet her. But this is also the nature of life and love that he misses the fact that she's not by his side. Well, make sense? And so, so part of this point here is that, um, that with gratitude, it will also temper many of the experiences that we have in life in a healthy way. And there's also a subtle point here. So <clears throat> perhaps many of us have even experienced this, or I'm sure we all know people who, some people who are just so consumed with grief that they're paralyzed, they can't do anything. Like if you've been hit with a really hard tragedy and you have to go through a long period of time where you can barely even get out of bed. You know, I have a... I have a, a friend whose son committed suicide May 28th of last year, right? So last Sunday was her first Mother's Day, you know, and the anniversary is in two weeks. And so she says literally that it's hard to breathe. You know, I think Isa knows what I'm talking about. And so, so the point here is that this will probably be her norm for a long, long time. And this does not mean that she's ungrateful. But gratitude can start becoming one of the small lights that can start helping someone get out. The other experience is my common 20-year-old undergrad who is overcome with fear about everything in the unknown. What do people think of me? What's going to happen to me after I graduate? Am I going to have a career? Am I going to get into school? Am I going to be loved? 
and they're so overcome with with fear that it starts becoming, you know, like paralyzing. And again, I'm also distinguishing that from physiological anxiety in the same way I'm saying physiological fear is somewhat involuntary. I'm also saying physiological anxiety is also somewhat involuntary as well. And so gratitude can also temper that. One way is, okay, well, Allah has taken care of me for this many years. So why wouldn't he take care of me for this for the next you know 20 years? Allah has given me struggles, but I'm still here in one piece. And so the struggles he gives me in the next 20 years, I'll still be in one piece. We'd all prefer not to have struggles, but that's reality of life. And so that's also a sentiment of gratitude that I would connect to your point, Judy, about trust. That he has given me so much that part of gratitude is the hope that he will give me more. There's a lot of times people have the fear that, okay, well, he answered this prayer, but it doesn't mean he's going to answer another one. <laughs> Other thoughts, reflections about all this. Now, you never got to a point about being asked to pray, though, right? Meaning in terms of the commands? Right. Yeah, that's around I-106, so about 70 eyes away. But it, it's a natural progression. If you, we have gratitude, so bow down and pray. Those people who have taqwa are going to obey that and trust and, and pray. But when you make a prayer, then at some level, you're trusting that the prayer is going to be answered and you're sure. going to be grateful that it was answered when it is. Mm-hmm. And so there you're talking about dua, right? As opposed to the salah. Well, yeah. yeah. But even for the salah, we have the story of Aisha waking up when, uh, in the middle of the night and she sees the prophet standing in prayer and his beard is wet from tears and his ankles are swollen from standing for such a long time. And then when he's done, she says, why, why are you doing these prayers? All your sins are forgiven. And he is saying, should I not be grateful? And this is especially in the context of Ayahs 190 to 195 of Surah 3. So Surah 3, 190 to 195 is the story of this person who's just reflecting upon life, thinking there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to life than just what everyone's going through and just getting through life. And then, you know, this person's further reflecting that, you know, Yallah, you didn't make all this arbitrarily. You didn't make all this in vain. There has to be something more. And then a caller comes calling that person. And then this person says, okay, Yallah, please notice that I've responded to this caller. And then there's the response from Allah saying, for my believers, I don't put any of their works in vain. All their works are observed, watched, and reported and recorded. And so that's I-190 to 195. And perhaps some of us have even experienced some of those same sentiments, but that's also the story of the prophet, peace be upon him. What is it that led him to start going to the cave in the first place? You know, one understanding is that he's just reflecting upon life. Like, I need to get away. I need to think about all this. What's the point of this all? And then either in that one visit or in one of those visits, we're taught that this is when he visited. He receives a visit from the angel the caller. So that's also the biography of the prophet himself. And so here he is in tears that Allah has been answering his own 
innate desires and yearnings and such. And so how do we express gratitude? It's one way is, is obedience, increase obedience. That Allah, you've done so much for me, so I'm going to answer your call. And then for all these other things. In times of, of ease, express gratitude. In times of difficulty, persevere through. And then when making difficult decisions, you make the best decision you can. And again, for all the times you fall short, see forgiveness. Any other thoughts, questions, reflections about all of this? So suffering is also uh, like uh, it was talked earlier that um, that if with the belief that uh, at the end you will be you will come out as being more nurtured. Yeah. Right. At the end, uh, if you be after you persevere through, mm-hmm. um, and any any test from God will be at the end you will be more nourished and nurtured. Yeah, and not necessarily all the way at the very end, but even on the other side of the suffering itself. That, you know, one person, if they get a flat tire, they feel like all life is falling apart. And then, But once they figure out how to deal with the flat tire, then the next three flat tires, you know, it's just a nuisance they have to deal with. Yeah. And so then the test increases in seriousness. Mm-hmm. Well, once I've seen that I make it through that, then the test increases in more seriousness and so so yeah so you have the two-year-old or the one-year-old that'll scream saying you know i want spaghetti for dinner and then you give spaghetti for dinner and then the the one-year-old says well i don't want spaghetti for dinner and then they're screaming crying right and that's their test and then you'll have the five-year-old who wants spaghetti for dinner but you know, you make knowledge of you know, you make something else, right? Uh, that's, and that's, of course, assuming uh, a very, very simple life. But we have a bunch of examples of, of people like the prophet who even lost their parents at a, at a young age. But the point is that once you've gone through some tests, even though you don't want to go through them again, you know you'll make it through. And that's the thing to remind ourselves about the bigger tests. It's a test because we don't want to go through it. Or I should know a better word than test is struggle. It's a struggle because we don't want to go through it. But we know we'll make it through. And so forth and so on. But in either case, they're like self-reinforcing cycles because the more suffering or test that you successfully uh, see yourself through, you build resilience. And the more that life is good and you have gratitude and it builds your trust in Allah. Meaning that's what it should be. That would be the path of the person of Taqwa. Because the other option is the path of Shaitan, which is that when I don't get what I, what I want, I turn against everybody. And I think we all know examples of, of people like that too. You know, when they get hit with struggle, they turn against everything. So what is then built in within gratitude then through the lens of struggle? It is perseverance. That at one level, so much of life is about gratitude and at another level, so much of life is about persevering through. 
whatever befalls you. So, so we have a bunch of undergrads here that, you know, or I should say students in general, uh, you know, academic students. And so you have finals and it's very easy to spend all your time in finals thinking, okay, this is the worst, this is the worst, you know, I'm never going to make it through. Or now that you've gone through it a bunch of times, it's just that, all right, I got to get the work done. No point in me wearing myself out with, with agony and trauma and worry. Oh, here's another finals I got to go through. Me on the teaching side, same thing. Whereas in earlier semesters, in my early part of the teaching career, it was this mountain of papers that I'd have to grade. And I would think about, man, this is never going to end. And then I finally came to uh, a mature realization, even some of us get mature sometimes, is, okay, well, it's the work I got to do. Do it now, do it later. If I do it later, then it's going to be on my mind, so do it now. And then vacation starts earlier. Oh, wow, there's a whole bunch of comments in the chat box. I'm sorry, I missed all this. Uh, let's see, what do we have? Fear of what could happen in the future. Oh, yeah, perhaps when you lack trust, proof of love, the same as the word for fear elsewhere, health. Okay. Fear and grief coincide in the current moment, so this passes to this a contented moment, to moment experience of life is guaranteed if you submit. Yes, neither. This was the other point about fear and grief, that when you are consumed with grief, we're consumed in the past. Again, we're not talking about a healing process that all of us have to go through when we're hit with tragedy. Uh, when you're consumed with fear, then you're, then you're dwelling in the future. And the goal is to live in the moment that you're in. Actually, you know, uh, people, um, they, this, people actually sometimes or often they did don't take this living in the moment as a positive. Like, uh, like uh, my friend was talking about his nephew that uh, he's living uh, day by day. He's not thinking about his future. Is that a different context or is it the same thing? Like, uh, uh, well, there, um, there is a certain amount of preparation we do have to do for the future, right? In the same way that we do have to go through grief when we're hit with tragedy, you have to go through a process of grief. Because if you don't, your system is going to force grief to happen to you in some other way. And so, so in the same way, for the future, you do have to make some preparations. And, you know, like, so for, think of a farmer who would have to do the harvest, right? They, they get all the crops during the good season, and then they have to harvest for when, you know, it's the dry season when they're not going to have any crops. And so that could translate physically as, you know, a certain amount of savings or learning skills for job security, what have you. So there's a certain amount we have to do those things. But your consciousness should still, the default should be, you know, looking at the moment you're in. And so a way to think about this, suppose you're sitting in class right now in this class and you're busy multitasking. You're not in the moment. And I'm not implying anyone's multitasking. Right now, someone just literally stopped. Oh, man, he caught me. So, so, so the point is that uh, even living in the moment means you have to bring yourself, okay, where am I and what do I need to focus on right now? Because social media is telling me to go that way. Big media is telling me to go that way. My friends are telling me to focus on this. My other friends are telling me to focus on that. And I'm everywhere except right here. And as you have more and more liabilities, for lack of a better word, AKA children, that gets harder and harder. And still, your default must be to be in the moment. 
And if you can do that, you will be a much more calm, much more contented person. And, and even you do all the preparation for the future and everything, it may not turn out to be the same way yeah. you expected. It, it's an investment, right? You can call it a gamble, but investment would be pretty a better term. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. in the moment will help actually. Yeah. That, you know, when you're hit with struggle, your first is to bring yourself back into the moment. Okay, what is my condition right now? If you have a capability, if you're in the middle of a car accident, that's a different situation. But even then, you want to try to get yourself back present in the moment. As opposed to, oh my gosh, how am I gonna, you know, how am I gonna get to work tomorrow? Or, you know, what are we gonna do about this and what are we gonna do about that? All those things are natural responses, but they're destructive. So worry is normal. I'm sorry. It's very hard to avoid those things, right? If you are some sort of a phase of trauma and all those things are coming to your mind. Yeah, but it takes practice. You know, you know every once in a while, you find a little child that seems to have the gift of automatically being that way, right? And sometimes the parents will raise their child to have it. A lot of times the parents will raise their child to have the opposite because the child's just totally afraid I'm going to be yelled at if I do this, I'm going to be yelled at if I do that, right? And but with practice and effort, everyone, inshallah, can reach this, you know, this comfort in just being me in the moment. And the commonplace for practice of that is your salah. Right? That I don't care what happens, as soon as I lift up my hands, the world can fall apart. Right now, I'm just focusing on being Allah. Another time to think about that is the moment of your iftar. It's like, okay, bam, fasting is done. Now you're free to eat. And you can either be like, arr, 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 like Cookie Monster, right? It's almost a monster. But, you know, you can sit and enjoy the food. And so a lot of what we're talking about is basically slowing yourself down. Guided meditation as a treat. I mean, this, these are basically the, the principles. It's literally just slow down to the point of zero. You know, another thing for people who, who, who have a, what is it called, a lead foot, people who have to speed when they're driving, try to drive the speed limit and be comfortable with it. Same, same idea. Even while everyone, I mean, everyone else is driving faster, you just show yourself driving at the speed limit. <laughs> Takes effort, but it does, you can get used to it, right? Or if you used to play music all the time, turn it all off and get yourself used to silence. Once you start getting used to silence, then everything just starts sounding like noise. So, or Judy, were you about to say something? No, but I did have a thought, you know, so if we were going back to look at the whole sewer going from, or, you know, the part we looked at from the unknown to the known, we're doing is developing a perspective a lens to look at things and we come to understand that there are some things outside of our control and some things inside of our control so for instance in our life the circumstances are not in our control we get lemons we make lemonade because we had lemons those lemons would be the circumstances and what we did with it was our choice and how we see it as our choice but over time the more lemonade we make and the more we enjoy it 
the more we want to make, we want lemons to make lemonade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so even think about this in terms of the way you're sitting, whether it's your, you know, right now or whenever, are you sitting in a place that just feels spiritually comfortable? Are you sitting in a way? You have to process. So, I have to like you have to process about it. Yeah. Not like, in, like right away you won't feel. I won't. I yeah, sure, sure. Do yeah. a little bit spend spend some energy, mm -hmm. mental energy. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is. I mean, it takes practice, and ideally, it's it's done with some sort of a guide. And so, what's the best case scenario? You have some sort of a guide, and you're working as part of a team. And so the team is reinforcing each other and in competition with each other as well. Right, Omar and Abu Bakr were reinforcing each other, but they're also in competition with each other. So, and your thoughts, reflections, questions about the, about the material. And so ultimately your experience in this world is a series of moments that Allah is putting you in with the question of how do you respond? And one aspect is you respond with obedience and others with gratitude, others with perseverance, and others making the best choices you can. With the mercy of Allah, then you have the opportunity for forgiveness and to keep seeking forgiveness all the way until the end. All righty. If there are no other questions, thoughts, reflections, inshallah, most likely it looks like we will have a session tomorrow because it seems like for most people, Eid is, is Thursday. And, and so we'll have a session and it's whatever it is everyone wants to talk about, open conversation, whether it's this material or something else. And then we'll bring it to a close. All righty. And let me see if there's any more texts that I missed. I think, I think I've gotten all the, tech, or the, the chats. I have a quick question. Or Nether, I was going to say, how can we make it through a class without a question from Nether? Okay. Go for it. Um, I guess just thinking through this, like one thought just occurred to me was that modern life kind of exacerbates fear to some degree, and it just maybe makes this whole process more difficult. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions in terms of you know, we don't want to like shun modern life um, and all the things mm -hmm. that come with it, technology, et cetera. Yep. Um, but, you know, being able to navigate these certain things that, can, you know, social media, technology, et cetera, that make gaining this focus so difficult. Yeah. So, I mean, so uh, first I'm going to expand on your point. Uh, so we're seeing these supremacist movements all over the world whether you're talking about white supremacy, Christian supremacy, Hindu supremacy, Buddhist supremacy, Jewish supremacy, Muslim supremacy, et cetera, et cetera, right? All over the world. And my contention, my, I'm suggesting that the primary fuel for almost all of it is that people are terrified uh, by the world, and especially about the future because of things like globalization and shifts in economy and such like that, right? I mean, if we just look at, you know, the demographic, that is buying into white supremacy, Christian supremacy in our society. And I'm just thinking of the people that I grew up with, you know, who, who drunk the Kool-Aid, you know, by the gallon. Uh, I think the actual core 
is that they are completely terrorized in their hearts, you know, by the world moving too fast for them. And, and, and so they've latched onto this black and white superiority language, which is collective arrogance. Remember what we just said about arrogance when we were talking about Chaitan you know, a couple of classes ago? It's collective arrogance. It's a collective delusional fantasy. And so that I think is going to be the norm in the world for quite some time. I mean, we've always had supremacist groups, but I think this is especially, we're gonna see even more of this. Now, so then what are ways to protect yourself? One is, is hinted in your question, which is to take control of your social media consumption. Because so much of social media is chatter that that creates confusion. And also so much of the chatter is fear-mongering. So think of all the people you know that have been posting all every single type of conspiracy theory regarding COVID, right? Okay, it's a 5G, you know, thing. It was made in a lab in Wuhan. It is X, it is this, it is that, it is XYZ, right? And so uh, the more you can get yourself off of social media, even if it's in temporary bursts, the more you're gonna feel the clarity in your head. Like when I take a, 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 a sabbatical, from social media, it's after about after I get through the withdrawal symptoms of wanting to check and check and check. Uh, it's like I feel this clarity that I haven't felt in a long time. And then Shallow's point: spend time in nature. Spend paused time in nature. Not like okay, I'm here. I'm gonna spend four hours. You know, spend time and try to really let yourself free yourself of everything that's on your mind. Again. Uh, we live in a tension, which is literally a type of distrust that we're keeping ourselves protected against whatever hits us. That's part of how anxiety works. And being able to force yourself to just exhale for the next hour, I don't care about anything. If that's too long, for the next half hour, I don't care about anything. Now I've made it through half an hour, let me make another half hour. And then make it through another hour. And then you can help sort of bring yourself back to your presence again. But yeah, modernity, I think um, a very big consequence of technology is the urgency of everything. And I remember when, when uh, email was being developed and laser printers and such were being developed and hard drives and people were saying, people are not gonna have to work anymore because you know, everything's gonna be saved and all that. And no, the end result is everyone just has to work even more now. And so, so that's also part of the future as technology advances, you know, you can see workloads getting more and more intense. So the need to free yourself is going to be equally intense. Yeah, that's definitely helpful. Um, I think just like another thing that comes to mind for me is that you're talking about like a core concept, which is that a lot of our tradition or the core of our traditions about relationships and being connected and social media is, you know, claims to connect us and maybe it does in some way. And this immediacy of responding to messages and emails, et cetera, um, is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's almost necessary to work on your relationship. So it's kind of, uh, I guess, um, I just, I see that as just difficult, I guess, you, like you're saying. Um, Takes practice. 
yeah, it takes practice to be able to engage with technology and social media in a way that connects you with others, but then pull back when it does anything other than that. Yeah. So, so what's the common practice? Text? No. Any messages? No. Any messages? Oh, yeah. Response. Any messages? No. Oh, two messages. Yeah, yeah. Now think of what happens if you turn off your phone for a day. Okay. You get the clarity. And this assumes you can, like, it's, you know, like, you know, like work and other obligations. So let's say you turn off your phone for a day and you relax. And then that's one satisfaction. The second satisfaction, the next day you turn on your phone and you got 10 messages. You got 50 messages. So now you have the, the joy that people are paying attention to you. So it's like a double win if you can do that. So, like, so often during the school year, I have to keep my phone out in case students are contacting me all the time. And, and so it's so much more fun uh, when I don't even look for for you know 10 hours 15 hours 20 hours i look the next day oh look at all these messages waiting for me people are paying attention to me and then 90 percent of them are spam anyway so you know. so yeah a lot of it is taking control of technology rather than letting how technology take control of you But to combine your two points, you were saying that you know the world has become people in the world these days are becoming terrorized by the things outside of them and the things of the unknown that they have no control over. Yeah. Why? Because they have no perspective. They don't, like you said, they give up their control and they're not owning their responsibility to themselves and to, to their relationship with God. And they're not living in their intention. And that's why the supremacist movements that are composed of people of belief are so much worse because they could take the path of belief Right? Every belief system in its own language is talking about what we're talking about today, right? Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism. But then when you take a nationalist supremacist movement, you're throwing all of that stuff out and just taking the approach that we are elite, we are civilized, we are humans, and everyone else is a bunch of monsters. So it's a double loss. You know, you're, you're embracing nonsensical, bizarro ideas, and you're rejecting the time-old traditions of all these different pathways. And yeah, uh, everyone take a look at uh, Isa's points because Isa is an expert on these things. That literally the notification sound is meant to disturb us and create a sense of urgency. Yeah, so I just do the do not disturb all the time. Any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Alrighty, then inshallah, we'll call it a day for today. And then whatever your final questions, thoughts, reflections are about anything text related, not text related is what we will focus on for tomorrow. So it might be a super short meeting that's 10 minutes long, or we might go on for hours and hours and hours. We'll see. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah. Wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude are to you. Nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta. We bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubu ilayk. And we turn to you. Okay. May Allah tell you all, inshallah. Hopefully those of you who still have break or fast will have super delicious paused slow if dark and we'll see you tomorrow inshallah
والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته